Gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to a very special edition of Corner Kick. I don't know about you guys, but I have my feet up. I'm in my most comfortable clothes. I've been smiling all over since I woke up to the news that the cries of our church have been heard. <laughs> Frank Lampard has officially gotten the sack from Chelsea, just as we have been eagerly anticipating for months now. But before we get into that, I am joined by a man who is not. billion in debt, Caleb Rhodes. Thankfully not. Thankfully not indeed. And I'm joined by another man who's willing to spend money on a center back this window, Nick Govindan. I'm ready to start uh, Patreon. I'm ready to crowdfund (laughs) FSG, Kickstarter, FSG, John W. Henry, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. (laughs) Let's get a center back through those (laughs) doors at Anfield. Real Real question, sorry. What would my credit score look like if I was $1.1 billion in debt? You would oh like, my lord. You know how you, oh, you would open the Bank of America app and the screen would just suddenly become the void? Oh my god. Dude, I feel like I feel like Rudy Giuliani is about to find out now that he's been sued for $1.3 billion. But sorry to interrupt you, Nick. No, I was going to skate. I, I mean... I know we've joked a lot about, we're going to talk about Frank Lampard losing his job today, obviously, on this podcast. Uh, I think we've joked a lot. You know, we have the church of Frank Lampard as a fraud. But to be honest, I woke up this morning and I saw that he'd been sacked. And I have a lot of respect for Lampard as a player. I don't think he was particularly ready to take on this Chelsea job. And as we'll discuss, I think they led him astray, they being Roman Marina and the board. So I do want to say that even though we joke a lot about Lampard, we never want to see someone lose their job or go do something like this we always want people the people that we talk about on this podcast to succeed so even though we might have some some jokes on this episode and we have joked about him in the past i think it is a sad day for chelsea and also a sad day if you are a premier league fan to see one of the legends of the league uh go out like this the thing that was most surprising was the timing you know because chelsea had a pretty catastrophic loss against leicester you know two weeks ago and coming on the backs of a 3-1 win, it just seems like the timing could have been um, a little better. But it seemed like Frank knew his time was up. He named Mason Mountain captain in his last game. And even in his departure letter, talked about how it was a pleasure to have, you know, overseen the growth of some of Chelsea's, um, you know, academy products over the last year and a half. But the numbers don't lie. Lampard looked overawed. There was a repeated failure to, to integrate his incredibly expensive new signings and shiny toys of the likes of Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, whose only shot on target was the missed penalty um, over the weekend against Luton Town. The culmination of, uh, of a number of unsuccessful attempts by Frank Lampard, but uh, I guess we should talk about the athletic article and sort of all of the details that it revealed about the tumultuous relationship between Frank and the board. Maybe I'll just start by contextualizing you know why was he fired where were they in the table so for context for those people that don't know Chelsea spent you know close to 200 million pounds this summer and are currently in ninth place and somehow are only two points ahead of Arsenal 
who, you know, just a few weeks ago we were talking about as relegation contenders. They are far worse this season in terms of their form than they were at this point last season. And so the main thing is that the team has regressed despite at least on paper improving. I think that's probably like the main charge against him right now. Yeah, and you'd think that they would be patient after giving their greatest ever player a King's Ransom to spend in the summer. However, we know how Chelsea operates. This is now the 13th manager that has been sacked by Roman Abramovich in his tenure as the owner of Chelsea. If you're a Chelsea fan, this has got to hurt the most out of all of Roman's firings. I don't think this club are particularly known for sentimentality, but in my time following soccer, this was the most sentimental appointment they've ever had. I think they brought him in in a time of uncertainty when they had a transfer ban and they couldn't bring in any players. And I think Frank Lampard's legacy will be his integration of players like Mason Mount, of players like Tammy Abraham and Reese James and Callum Hudson-Odoi to a certain extent, really getting his career going at Chelsea after he tried to leave the club and go to Bayern Munich. I couldn't imagine if FSG only gave Steven Gerrard 18 months in the Liverpool job. I think 18 months is not nearly enough time for us to truly evaluate Lampard as a manager, especially after, you know, after reading that athletic article, you got the sense that Chelsea, you know, really only bought into this shift of culture towards their youth for one season and they abandoned that by the wayside and they kind of gave Lampard a poison chalice in all of these transfers and really didn't give him enough time to try and integrate these pieces. However, I do think that Lampard's failings came in the aftermath of that Arsenal match where obviously they, they were single-handedly responsible for the rejuvenation of Mikel Arteta's tenure when he kind of came out and publicly scolded his players. And I think all of that stuff, all of that man management stuff that you learn after years and years on the job Frank Lampard didn't seem to have much of those chops. However, I do think that he is the victim of a culture shift that was promised to him in the first season of his management tenure, but was kind of pulled away from him this summer and in the subsequent months at Chelsea. I'm going to push you on that a little bit, because if there's any person who shouldn't be naive about what Chelsea is, it's Frank Lampard. No, and I think he would, I think he would agree with you. And I think by all accounts, he knew exactly, he knew that this was coming. I, I, think, I think this was the right time to sack him. However, I think I can say that this was a soulless decision and a decision that's going to upset a lot of Chelsea fans. However, I think in the long term, especially as we see Tuchel coming into the door, I, I shouldn't actually say the long term because you should never speak about the long term at Chelsea, it seems. But in the immediate term with Tuchel coming in, Someone who, if you looked on paper, who's the better manager to get the best out of this, you know, more experienced team now with the likes of Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, etc., Tiago Silva. It is Tuchel. However, I think I think it is a soulless decision at the end of the day. I don't think this. Sorry, Nathan. Uh, I don't think the decision is soulless. I do think Chelsea often lack some class. Like I think the fact that they didn't let Frank Lampard back to the training ground today to say, you know, goodbye to his staff, the team, etc., a place that he knows so well, was a little heartless. I don't think that this move, the decision to sack him was wrong. 
and I don't think we should give Lampard too much of a break. And I'm I'm kind of surprised by how like lightly you're going on him a little bit, considering you were literally the the founder of the Church of Frank Lampard is a fraud. It's true. We might have we might have to put you on trial for um for heresy, but like I think Caleb to back up your point, the numbers really don't lie when it comes to Chelsea this year. And I think the general thesis surrounding Frank Lampard is that Chelsea have a lot of talent, but he is not a, ter- a, a terribly tactically astute coach. One of the things that really stood out to me in the athletic article was that some players hadn't gotten specific tactical instructions from him for months, which we found out was Keppa. <laughs> Like, that's that's what I'm talking about. Like, clearly the players who stabbed him in the back here were players like Kepa, players like Marcus Alonso, players like Emerson Palmieri, who were frozen out by Lampard. If you look at Thiago Silva, posted a really generous message on Twitter and Instagram today in support of Lampard, and in support of Lampard, a, a ton of other players have as well. So I think this guy was appreciated by the people who he had trusted to deliver him results. However, Chelsea didn't do a good job of clearing all of their bad actors and bad characters and people that they didn't necessarily want at the club this season. And they were lingering around the Cobham training ground. And clearly they went behind Lampard's back to sort of undermine him a little bit. And I'm not saying that that's not Frank Lampard's responsibility. You do have to manage the whole squad, especially in the Premier League and when you're in the Champions League as well. However, I do think like those players, we know who those players are. But, who, are, who are coming out? But I don't think it. But I things. don't think it matters though, because if you look at their results this year, they haven't beaten a single big six club. You know, they drew with West Brom. They blew. They drew with Southampton. They, you know, they they had a miserable performance against Spurs, which luckily for them ended up in a nil-nil draw. They coasted through the easiest Champions League group stage of, or the easiest Champions League group of all eight groups. They lost to Everton, Wolves, and Arsenal. Regardless Here's the thing. Of, okay. Regardless of whatever bad actors there are. The numbers speak to the numbers have to speak for themselves. I agree. I agree, Nathan. Here's the thing I don't appreciate. When Lampard was appointed, and when especially specifically this summer, if you, you know, watch any of David Ornstein's content back from a few months ago when he was talking about how Lampard recruited the likes of Timo Werner, the likes of Kai Havertz to Chelsea, Lampard was articulating this three-year plan that he said that he had been guaranteed by Chelsea to get things right at the club. And especially in his first year at the club, if you look at the amount of trust that he was given in integrating the youth talent into the team, and he had success in that first season. He finished in the top four. He made it to the round of 16 in the Champions League, and he made it to the FA Cup final without investing any new bodies into the squad aside from Pulisic. I think you have to say that although he was out of his depth as a coach, like Caleb said, I don't think Chelsea treated him in the classiest of fashion. And I I think you could say in a similar fashion to what United did with David Moyes, Chelsea kind of set him up to fail. Yeah. I think, I think it is useful to divide the question a little bit, like on what points should we criticize Chelsea, the club, i.e. Roman Abramovich, you know, pulling the trigger and holding this kind of sort of Damocles over every manager's head. And to what extent was Lampard actually just, a very average coach who just also happens to be a club legend, which doesn't always make you a great coach. And is probably a, you know, a good reality check for those former players like Gerard or, or Chavi that are trying to eventually make it back to their home clubs. I, I, one quote that's been going around recently, 
as in today because of this decision is a quote Lampard had about uh, Andreas Villas-Boas from a few years after AVB was sort of famously sacked, um, then another young Portuguese manager coming to Chelsea. And Lampard said, AVB had played his cards and it hadn't worked, uh, Lampard told The Sun in 2014. I don't know if he was too young or whether it had come too early for him. And I'm just wondering what you guys think. Do these words come back to haunt Lampard in thinking about whether it was Chelsea that set him up for failure or whether he just failed as a coach himself? I think I think yes and no, right? And there was also another quote that he, when he was a pundit on BT Sport and Mourinho was about to get sacked for the second time following his own defeat to Leicester in 2015, Lampard said something like, even in a down year, Chelsea should be in the top six. So I think those words come back to haunt him. I think with the AVB quote, it's a totally different situation because Frank Lampard is a Chelsea legend. He's their greatest ever player. And those memories are very recent. Like he was a Chelsea player as recently as 2015. It's one of those things where, of course, he's never going to turn down the opportunity to take the helm of this club, regardless of whether or not he's prepared. But Chelsea knew that he wasn't ready to take this job, which is why they appointed him and they entrusted him with the keys to youth players, which was his specialty at Derby, integrating youth talent into the team. It just seems to me like when the going got tough with their rookie manager, instead of trying (laughs) at all to support him, even though, like I said, his skills at man management were lacking, his skills tactically were lacking towards the end of his tenure. Chelsea really looked like they didn't have an identity under Lampard. And that is probably because the squad was super imbalanced. It, it just seems to me like Marina and Roman Abramovich really didn't support Lampard when the going got rough for their rookie coach. And they should have expected this to be the case. Like these coach, Arteta has had a blip. Ole has had a blip where it has looked really bleak. And we're going through Lampards right now. However, the difference between Chelsea, Arsenal, and Manchester United is that when Roman doesn't see success, Roman changes things immediately. Yeah, and I, I think we all know that. And I just, Chelsea are the sixth most valuable club in the world and the third most valuable in the Premier League. And we know that net spend is statistically an incredibly good indicator of end of season success. And right now, Chelsea were set to be an extreme outlier. And so as much as I think like I'm willing to criticize Chelsea for being very harsh and strict with their managerial appointments, I think particularly about the Antonio Conte decision. I also understand the financial reasoning and I can see the logic of Roman. I mean, he set a pretty clear precedent. And I think Frank Lampard with exactly half of the season gone in his second year also understood that it was a, it was a business decision um, and, and nothing more like, yes, Chelsea are sort of authoritarian, but I don't think it's without merits when you look at their form. I mean, I find it hard to lay the charge that like Chelsea didn't support Frank Lampard when they gave him, you know, 200 million pounds of new talent. I'm not talking about the transfers, though. And like if you read the article, I'm talking about the fact that like he just just kind of left him blowing in the wind a little bit in regards to like actual actual infrastructural support at Chelsea. Like he didn't, in his first season, he couldn't get all of the coaches that he wanted. The fact that Jody Morris has been let go is also super significant. Jody Morris has had a huge impact on players like Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham, coming through their ranks in the youth academy. When you hire a coach like Frank Lampard, you need to give him all the support that you can 
whether it's, you know, his backroom staff that he's used to at Derby, whether it's more structural support within the club. If you're going to hire, Frank Lampard is not Antonio Conte. Frank Lampard hasn't had 15 plus years of managerial experience. Uh, I just think it's, it's super tough to expect the same things out of what is essentially a rookie manager in the Premier League. And I guess project the fact that you're attempting to change the culture of the club only to pull the rug away in the second season of that experiment, quote unquote. But therein also lies the argument for sacking him, right? I agree. I agree. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Like as Nathan said, like based off of the money they've spent and how this team performed last year without losing too many of those players, like what is the main driving factor for their underperformance? It's not the fact that Frank Lampard didn't have like the assistant coach that he wanted. It's Frank Lampard. No, I understand that. I also think the players are not totally exempt. Oh, I don't think the players are exempt either. But I just think like at some point when you lose the locker room, when the players don't want to play for you, that also matters. And as much as Chelsea has an allegiance to Frank Lampard, Chelsea also has an allegiance to Chelsea. And they did, which makes sense to me. I guess I, I agree with you, Caleb, but I guess the question is you're essentially hiring Chelsea when you're hiring Frank Lampard. You're hiring your greatest ever player. You're hiring someone who you know is going to have the unilateral backing of the fans even when things go wrong. Like Chelsea fans did not want this to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we can agree. Chelsea probably never should have hired Frank Lampard, but they did and it was an untenable situation and they fired him. And unfortunately... History has happened, and it's unlikely we'll see Frank Lampard as Chelsea manager for at least another decade while he kind of wallows in the wind or finds some championship team to manage. But that's just kind of how things are going. And I guess that's my point, right, is if they knew that this was going to be the end result, if they didn't trust him completely, why hire him in the first place? I don't know. I mean, you it's an unenviable task to be able to take to have to take over a club that was going to be hit with a transfer ban and a club that was notoriously harsh on managers with a complex backroom situation and an incredibly complex set of standards from fans. It was the right appointment at the time. And I think there's a reason that we were all anticipating, uh, you know, Chelsea being legitimate title contenders this year. I would, I still would have waited until after the champions league games. I don't see what was gained by sacking him now, especially sacking him after an FA cup win. Thomas Tuchel definitely has a heck of a job. Um, on his hands and I guess and that's the thing like Thomas Tuchel is going to be this sitting duck who's not going to have the favor and he's super lucky that he's coming into the Chelsea job when there's no fans at Stamford Bridge because could you imagine being the Chelsea manager who is appointed after Frank Lampard gets sacked no you immediately have a target on your back and we know that Thomas Tuchel has been volatile with upper management at his past three clubs, Mainz, Borussia Dortmund, and most recently PSG, which is an extremely public falling out with Leonardo, their sporting director. So I can't see Thomas Tuchel totally, you know, flipping the switch at Chelsea. I imagine that he'll he'll probably whisper sweet nothings into his compatriots, Timo Werner and Kai Havertz ears, and Kristen Pulisic will start playing well again because Thomas Tuchel spent three or two and two and a half years with him at Borussia Dortmund. But what was the, and I guess making the, the top four is always going to be the line in the sand for Roman. However, I don't think appointing Thomas Tuchel on January 25th is necessarily the answer for getting Chelsea back into the top four either. I mean, it might not be, but at the same time, the answer for Chelsea is getting Timo Werner to play like Timo Werner and Kai Havertz to play like Kai Havertz. 
and getting a German into the club to do that is probably the the most sensible thing you you could do right now. So I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I suppose. What do you guys think Frank is going to get up to in the meanwhile? I think he'll take. I think he'll wait until the summer to get another job. Uh, I don't see what he would gain from from jumping into a, a managerial role at this point in the season because any role that opens up right now is going to be a relegation battle because teams don't normally sack managers um, unless there's extremely, extremely poor form in the second half of the season. So I would imagine he waits it out a bit and then maybe finds a championship team to return to in the summer. Or maybe he goes the Gerrard route and finds a, a club in a, in a lesser league to try and, you know, build up his resume. Right. The odds already favor him to become the new Celtic manager. So we will see what happens with Frank Lampard. I also agree with Nathan. I think it's also right now it's really expensive for clubs to sack managers. And I think it was less expensive for Chelsea to sack Lampard at this stage of the season, considering his contract only had a year and a half left on it. I think that was a big factor for Roman as well. What do you guys think? What are we, I already kind of explained my skepticism of the Thomas Tuchel appointment, but what do you guys think about about Tuchel coming through the doors at Stamford Bridge? Look, Tuchel, I guess he has experience with, you know, overachieving or, or managements that want to to overachieve in PSG, and he did lead them to a Champions League final. He does have a tricky task of, I think, rehabilitating guys like Timo Werner, guys like Kai Havertz, you know, the Germans who cost a lot of money, coaxing performances out of them that Lampard wasn't able to do because... For a club like Chelsea, with how with how ruthless they are, and how I think they're in general prepared to spend a lot of money, they'll just cut their losses and ship them back. You know, like Timo Werner will just go back on loan to Leipzig. I think he's got some tricky tasks in terms of man management. But if there's any if there's anything that should you know make Chelsea fans happy about this decision, Tuchel is known for being particularly good with youth as well, um, both at PSG and particularly at Mines. Um, where he got, where he cut his managerial teeth, so to speak. So definitely something to look out for there. And and he has a, I would say a mixed bag of games coming up. I know he's got Spurs in a few weeks, but they also have another cup tie against Barnsley coming up. Um, of course, the first match is against Wolves in just two days time. So Wolves and Burnley in the span of six days. Welcome to English football. Perhaps wrapping up this conversation, needless to say, the church of Frank Lampard is a fraud is not closing with St. Lampard, maybe more of a book of Job kind of story, um, which at least leaves some space for redemption. But perhaps we should move on to another sort of harrowing soccer event of the past few days, Liverpool versus Manchester United in the FA Cup. Manchester United defeating Liverpool 3-2 at Old Trafford. Jurgen Klopp has still not won in his last six games at Old Trafford. Liverpool have now faced the Red Devils twice in the past few weeks, have been unable to win. This was, I think, a pretty revelatory game, both on the pitch, but also pointed to some bigger structural issues. Nick, I don't know if you want to take this away first or whether you want to sort of speak second. I mean, I'll let I'll let Nathan give his objective viewpoint of this game, and then I'll, I'll proceed. And I think you had a good point, Caleb, while we were watching this game together as well. That I'm interested for you to to share with our our corner kick fam. But Nathan, hit me with your thoughts on on Liverpool's winless run. We we've sort of we've talked a lot about 
where Liverpool's squad needs reinforcements. And I think it was made entirely self-evident as poor Reese Williams, who as one fan described him as um, having a ceiling of a relegation team from the championship was forced to go up against a front three of Mason Greenwood, Edinson Cavani and Marcus Rashford, who simply just tore him apart um, in a, in a pretty dismal performance that really reemphasized uh, Liverpool's need to sign another center back. The whole game was capped off by substitute Bruno Fernandes having a, an excellent free kick about six yards out from his normal haunting grounds of the penalty spot <laughs> um, that really gave Allison no chance, but all in all, it was another stagnant performance. Mo Salah did score twice. Firmino did have two assists, but that was not enough as a, a lightly rotated Liverpool team lost uh, to a lightly rotated United. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I, I, I also feel quite poorly for Williams, who has found out on a number of, of occasions. I think it's good to see Sala in and amongst the goals again and Firmino making sort of better choices in the final third. I don't read too much into the fact that, you know, in Tiago's five starts, they've they've yet to win, they being Liverpool here. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this was another game where Manchester United kind of actually asserted themselves as a legitimate force, whether by by skill or by sheer belief. Having a player like Bruno Fernandes able to come off the bench and score a free kick honestly showed what Liverpool were missing right now. Um, I mean, I know they brought Mane off the bench, but normally he doesn't start there. And I think Liverpool lack a spark and they lack you know, just the defensive personnel. At this point, FSG have said that they aren't going to sign a center back in January. And Klopp has very publicly called them out. Nick, where do you think this team goes from here if they will continue to have to play some mixture of the sort of ball playing but sort of bad defensive player of Williams versus the stay at home but offering not much else, Nat Phillips at center back. Or Jordan Henderson. Or Jordan Henderson. Who's injured coming into this game, which is another worry for Liverpool. The fact that even their substitute or their rotate or their like uh, makeshift center backs aren't even fit to play in these big games. Liverpool will finish sixth if they can't sign a center back in January. The play has totally stagnated uh, due to either the fact that, you know, this is one mental step too many for this team that has had to overcome so much in the past two seasons. I just think that, you know, the integration of Thiago in this period of really tough form has been super hard on the first team. Thiago is someone that needed time to really learn Liverpool's transitional-based system. Thiago is someone who doesn't really thrive in transition. He thrives with the ball at his feet. Uh, Liverpool are a team that, you know, breaks people down in really short order. And I think Thiago will eventually be a great player for Liverpool, but while he's kind of wasted in the defensive midfield positions, I think right now he's just kind of trying to figure out the best way that he can uh, apply his his talents to the system that we're trying to play. I think the 4-4-2, it was a decent idea against United. I think, like you guys have already pointed out, Liverpool tried to attack with reckless abandon at times just to score a few goals, and they were able to do that in this game. And Salah somehow has 19 goals in all competitions on the season. I don't know. I'm kind of lost for words at this point. It is sort of like a Space Jam-esque 
loss in ability. I don't know if like the Monstars came down to earth with like a soccer ball <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like sucked the power away from all of these Liverpool players. But I think it's just really tough when you've had two seasons where you've had to be so mentally strong, lose the Champions League one season, come back the next season and win the Champions League. But you win the Champions League knowing that you lost the league by one point to Manchester City. So you got to come back the next season and you're so mentally strong and you win the league by 19 points. And then this season, you open up with a 7-2 loss. And then in the following game, you lose your best player for the rest of the season. I just think these thing, these these things take a mental toll on this team. We're starting to see that now. Diogo Jota was a good boost of freshness. I don't think it's a coincidence that this bad run of form is coming while he's been sidelined with an injury. Klopp is, you know, still the man to get Liverpool out of this slump. If you're a Liverpool fan and you're calling for Klopp to get sacked, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Klopp is still very much the man, but Klopp needs support. Klopp is only one man. His mental fortitude is incredibly strong. But if you're FSG, you have to back your title winning manager in this transfer window or else your plans for the future, whatever they may be this summer, whatever rumored big signing we're thinking of acquiring, we're not going to be able to do it without Champions League football. And we're not going to be able to get Champions League football if we don't sign. I'm not even saying like sign an elite center back. I would be fine with a fourth choice rotational option. Liverpool just need a plug and play defender right now or else they can't achieve their goals this season. And can you imagine any of the other traditional big six teams facing this sort of injury crisis and not sort of having someone ready to go on January 1st? Because it seems to me that like maybe FSG don't have quite the same spending power as the Glazers or, you know, the city ownership group, but they have enough money and enough um, at stake in terms of Liverpool's eventual end position in this league that it was actually shocking and very un-Liverpool-like to have them not have a deal done, you know, as soon as the window opened. And we're talking about a team that was able to complete a deal for one of Europe's most sought-after midfielders in Fabinho without any media knowing until the day of. And when you look at the, the types of bargains that certain teams have been able to accomplish, you know, the one that jumps out to me is Leicester signing Johnny Evans for, I think, like 2.5 mil from a then relegated West Brom team, there's got to be a championship center back that's good enough that won't cost more than five or 10 mil who you could just throw in on day one and trust to do the job, right? Like I just, it just, it's kind of baffling and it, it goes against all of the principles that I think Liverpool have tried to establish over the last couple of years of dominance. It, it's frankly inexplicable. Uh, and I was actually thinking of those two examples you brought up, Nathan, the Fabinho transfer and then also like Johnny Evans as being an example of someone who honestly could be a great fit obviously he would never leave Leicester at this point but like there are players like that FSG for whatever reason have have not gone out and bought and I know Nick and I we watched the FA Cup game uh together <laughs> at one point we were saying you know how good an FA Cup run could be for Liverpool considering it doesn't seem like they're gonna win the title and then that was you know pretty swiftly dashed but we were talking a little bit about FSG and we kind of decided that perhaps they're bringing too much of a baseball or American sports 
mindset to the management of a soccer team because in at least in American sports, when you do badly, you actually get rewarded with like the best player in America. <laughs> um, but obviously in soccer, if you do badly, you just make less money and then lose your good players. And well, I also think, Caleb, you brought up the fact that like we've seen similar things happen in FSG's tenure owning the Red Sox where <laughs> they had a title winning team and then just like a year and a half later, they let a generational talent go in Mookie Betts because they felt he was too expensive. So FSG is fine with success until they feel like it's too expensive and they can rebuild on the cheap. Yeah, and there's that. And we also talked about how uh, I think FSG have very kind of clear plans on how they expect to sort of spend money over the course of a year. And as Nick mentioned, they appear to be saving up a bunch of money for a marquee signing this summer. Someone like Mbappe has been rumored. Um, and so obviously losing all of your first team center backs is not something you, you plan for, but you you just have to be able to react to a situation like that. And once again, 10 million, honestly, probably wouldn't jeopardize any attempt Liverpool could make towards getting, you know, some type of world-class Mbappe Holland type player this summer. And so I don't really have an explanation Clearly, over time, we've seen that there is friction between Liverpool, the club, and FSG, the owners. And I'm not really sure how this plays out, especially if, you know, as Nick prophesized, they do fall outside the top four come season's end. Well, I think we should turn from one financial disaster to another um, (laughs) because it's wild how this was like the third most compelling news story of the day. But um, you know, Barcelona being a publicly owned company, they are um, compelled to release documents surrounding their finances. It turns out that they have accumulated over a billion dollars in debt, of which 730 million of which is short term. Excuse the fact that is said of which twice in the span of like eight words. That's some pretty concerning uh, numbers for a club that we knew was in dire financial straits. But it turns out that they owe like 130 million to clubs like Liverpool and Ajax for transfer fees. It seems like they are quite literally on the verge of declaring bankruptcy and with their star player potentially poised to depart the club in a matter of months, things could be going from lukewarm to a lot worse for Barcelona. Well, this just means that they have to let Messi go in order to be financially, not even solvent, but like financially responsible this summer, right? Because I think at this point, Messi is even though you'd want to keep them for sporting purposes and for culture purposes, like at this juncture, it's just not financially expedient for them to keep Lionel Messi anymore. Yeah. I think it probably would make fiscal sense to let Messi go, which I think is something we knew this summer, considering that part of the reason Barcelona are in such poor financial situation, COVID aside, which is obviously huge is the fact that we have pretty much the largest, if not the largest, wage bill in the world. And we've already had to defer several payments and get uh, teams to take pay cuts. But also, I think, you know, this debt demonstrates pretty clearly the mismanagement that's been going at the club for several years, especially around transfers. Some of my favorite elements of this announcement was the fact that we still owe Gremio money for Arthur, who now plays for Juventus. We still owe Bayern, 
money for Arturo Vidal, who now plays for Inter Milan. And so, I don't know, it's just kind of a farce a little bit. We still owe Bordeaux money for Malcolm, who now plays for Zenit St. Petersburg. Although Zenit do still owe Barcelona money for Malcolm. So maybe that offsets a little bit. I'm less concerned about the fact that we still owe like Ajax some money for De Jong or Coutinho some money or owe Liverpool some money for Coutinho because that's probably just the structure of the deal. Hey, uh, can we, hey, hold up, hold up. Yeah. Could we get that money tomorrow, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, $29 million goes a long way in this current center back market. Yeah. Well, dude, this, take, take Todibo, I'm telling you. Just... <laughs> Honestly, I don't know why you wouldn't take him. I don't know. He's a bad character, it seems. Oh, no, Liverpool he's horrible. Only signed good characters. Yeah, you, you don't need... I feel like 21-year-old Frenchman is definitely not the solution to Liverpool's uh, defensive problems right now anyways listen cash check venmo we'll take we'll take we'll take that 29 zell. million zell <laughs> cash app we'll, we'll we'll gladly take the 29 million uh, start tagging their own official account in those tweets where from cash app where it's like drop your cash app for a surprise back on the varsity thing i think this is another example about why delaying the election was probably not the right answer Because the longer we don't really have someone in the driver's seat, the longer these financial issues are going to fester, the longer Messi's situation is going to fester. Honestly, are we really surprised? I mean, I'm surprised by the number, but I'm not really surprised in like a deeper sense about what this says about the management of of my club. I'm really surprised about the number because I think this number means that it's impossible for, not impossible, but it's irresponsible, I think is the word that I should pick for Barcelona to like conduct any business until they at least have some sort of tangible plan for sorting this debt crisis out. Right. And whether, whether that's like, you know, you come to some sort of agreement where Messi can leave in the summer, but I think they have a squad right now that is in dire need of reshaping. And I don't know if they can accomplish any of those goals in terms of squad development in this current state. I I saw, I came across this article today about how, um GameStop's stock has been like going through the roof because basically like a ton of people tried to short their stock back in like December but instead it had the opposite effect and has just sent their stock going straight up and I feel like Barcelona have done the same thing where with transfers like Griezmann um or even guys like Malcolm um or Arthur but Barcelona have basically tried to like go double or nothing with themselves for the last couple of years. And they've basically exhausted all of their equity. And now, you know, they owe all of this money. And it's no surprise because none of the bets that they've made have paid off. And they've repeatedly failed to profit off of, you know, guys like Coutinho. They've just continued to take these massive losses. So I thought that was just like kind of an interesting thing that popped up today that was sort of analogous. But yeah. I think we should, we, don't, we were on 44 minutes, so let's talk about the Americans. We're skipping Adelanta. Let's skip Adelanta. Let's skip it. I think it's fun. We haven't talked about the Americans at all. No, okay. so let's talk about the Americans. Oh, wait. We, we, need, we should talk about Matt Miazga also. Should we? He scored a goal, I think. Where does he play? I don't know. Like Reading? <laughs> 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 I 
Uh, he, plays he plays for Anderlecht. He plays for Anderlecht. He plays for Belgium. I just wikipedia him, and at first, first thing I read was Clifton High School, and I was like, no. The man's not playing for his high school team still. He's uh, like 30. He's 25. Oh, no, no, no. It's the other defender that Chelsea signed. It's like oh. for the season, Michael Hector. Michael Hector? He, oh, I he, thought you were talking about the Jibba Love Joby. Jilaboji. 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 Oh, yeah. Poppy Jilaboji. He's pretty Dude, those are the signings that Mourinho made. Oh, my God. He made zero. Well, no, sorry. One cup appearance for Chelsea in the Carabao Cup. All right. We got to get back on track. Nathan, can you segue us into the Americans? But anyways... You know, it seems like this last weekend was a big weekend for Americans across Europe, of which there are more and more with each passing day. It seems like Fabrizio Romano announcing today that Brian Reynolds is set to be a Roma player by the end of the week for a fee of $7 million I thought he bought Wrexham. What was that? I said, I thought Ryan Reynolds bought Wrexham. Ha ha ha. For a fee of $7 million for the FC Dallas homegrown. Um, and he is just the latest American to join a Serie A club or a club abroad. Earlier this window, Mark McKenzie, a Philadelphia Union homegrown center back, joined Genk. Um, you know, he'll be playing in the same league as fellow USMNT Matt Miazga, who plays for Anderlecht. <laughs> and Weston McKinney scored a goal this weekend and unveiled a sort of Disney Channel-esque celebration. So we figured we would bring to you guys some discussion of the Americans that are playing abroad right now. And uh, despite the recent underwhelming performances of Christian Pulisic and Serginio Dest, it seems like there's room for uh, encouragement for Americans watching from abroad. Yeah, listen, America has a new president. I don't know if you guys have heard that at all, but we decided it was it was high time that we discuss some of our patriotic companions who are applying their trade abroad but lads, I think a signing that we were all skeptical of coming into this season was Weston McKinney heading from Schalke to Juventus. And I think it's safe to say that he has been one of the surprises of the season in terms of his consistency for Juventus. We often talk about how Juve lacked dynamism this season in Andrea Pirlo's setup. And I think McKinney has been one of the players who have offered something a little different a lot of mobility, a lot of willingness to get on the ball, to make a difference. And to me, he's been one of the standouts in Serie A this season. Pirlo, we, we've criticized him a bunch this year for making Juventus boring and a little rote. But McKenney has actually, I think, grown quite a bit as a player. I mean, he has four goals uh, in 21 games this season, and he has never scored that many in a season before he had three last year um, in 32 games for Schalke. And I think playing him at that right midfield position in a four, four, two has really helped him develop some more attacking capabilities. So Juventus are kind of bad, but at least Pirlo is teaching our American something. And I think the exposure to players like Cristiano Ronaldo can do nothing but help McKenney in his development and especially in his confidence as he grows into a quality player in the European game. And it looks like he's actually developed a good relationship with the Portuguese superstar as well, which is incredibly cool to see uh, as an, a USMNT fan. It was, it was definitely a surprising transfer, 
because it seemed like he was McKinney was leaving a a fairly destitute Schalke team for one of the best teams in Europe, but he has been more than worth the loan fee, and I'm sure that he'll be a good fixture for Juve for years to come. Um, but seeing his success, I think you know Reynolds from from FC Dallas is making the right step for for his career, and Roma are obviously a team that have have a lot of ups and downs you know they score a lot of goals but they also concede even more they have a really weird mixture of incredibly aged players and a lot of youth like Marash Kumbula um and it seems like he'll have quite some adjusting to do to the to the play style of Serie A but it's definitely exciting to see you know young Americans moving abroad and not just moving abroad for publicity's sake, but to immediately compete for starting roles. Mm. I don't know much about Brian Reynolds, to be honest. Deadpool is a good movie. I mean, Reynolds, is a, he's a 19-year-old. He, you know, appeared in almost every single game for FC Dallas this last year. Part of raising the American profile in the, in the, in the global soccer world is for MLS clubs to begin sending their homegrown talent to the biggest teams in the world. And while Mark McKenzie moving from Philadelphia to Genk might not be quite as marquee a transfer as someone who is already in Europe, like a Weston McKinney or a Christian Pulisic, 19-year-olds with first-team experience like Reynolds moving to you know teams that are ostensibly challenging for the European places and you know immediately getting playing time is a good thing. Yeah, this, this is kind of a separate conversation, but you do wonder how this affects you know, the growth and popularity of MLS. I think there was probably like an unstated assumption that as America became more enamored with soccer and as, you know, the youths got good at soccer, it would raise the level of play domestically. Um, But if you have the best players just jumping to Europe already, I wonder if that kind of potentially hamstrings MLS as a league and kind of puts it puts a, a ceiling on its sort of continued growth. Yeah, uh, like Nathan said, I think the goal of, you know, the United States Soccer Federation, at least from the men's side, should be to field a very competitive team at the 2022 World Cup, especially considering that they weren't even present uh, in 2018 in Russia. So I think having all of these these players who could potentially make up a good core for that tournament be abroad and getting significant minutes at European sides is extremely beneficial for the United States prospects. Let us discuss Mark McKenzie, who has moved from the Union to Genk this window. Genk have a notoriously amazing track record of developing young prospects in recent years. You think of Kevin De Bruyne when you think of Genk. You think of Romelu Lukaku. You think of Yannick Carrasco. You think of, specifically to Mark McKenzie's position, you think of Kalidou Koulibaly, Stephen DeFore, Thibaut Courtois, Divock Origi, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, Wilfred Ndidi. There is plenty of quality names that have come through the Genk system, and hopefully McKenzie will be reaping the rewards of going to such a prestigious club when it comes to developing their talent. I think you're right, Nick. Moving to a club with such a, an established record of, of developing talent is, is a good thing. And the Belgian league is one of those weird leagues where, you know, you have four or five teams, you know, Anderlecht, Bruges, Genk, Antwerp, that 
you know, compete in Europe pretty regularly. And the rest of the league, um, sort of like the Eredivisie, is full of, you know, significantly lesser talent. So it's a good place to hone your craft if you're a ball-playing center back who might have aspirations of moving on to a top five league in a year or so. Indeed, indeed. Let's talk about two more players before we wrap up here. Let's talk about one striker who scored an incredible bullet goal, which is not uncommon for Americans these days. (laughs) For for Werder Bremen this weekend in the Bundesliga, it is Josh Sargent. This is a player, guys, that I think we've kind of been waiting for us to kind of show that he has the bona fides to really be America's number nine going forward. And I think now he has some competition in the form of Matthew Hoppe in the Bundesliga, another young American who has taken the Bundesliga by storm in recent weeks. But have you guys made of Josh Sargent a player who was heralded at such a young age and is finally looking like he's uh, developing into an extremely quality player this season? I am still waiting. I think the thing with Josh Sargent is he has scored, what, 10 first-team goals for Werder Bremen now across three seasons. And the problem is almost all of them are, like, remarkable in some way. His first Bundesliga goal was, like, I don't remember exactly what happened, but he, like, lifted it over the keeper. I don't know. It was it was dramatic. And this goal was also dramatic. It kind of overshadows the fact that he still only has two Bundesliga goals in 17 appearances this year. He only had four in 28 last year. He has four goals in 19 appearances this year, which is, you know, a better rate than last season. But he still isn't even close to hitting a like 15 to 20 goal European campaign. At the same time, he's still only 20. So he has lots of time to grow, but I don't think he is there yet. Uh, Lads, let's wrap things up. Nathan, I know you're extremely excited about this transfer. It is Jordan Morris joining championship side Swansea, and it's looking like he'll be making his debut this week. Lads, going to the championship is an extremely difficult task for any player, let alone a player with no European experience. But we know Jordan Morris is an exceptionally talented winger, probably one of the best players that MLS has to offer. How do you think he will fare in an incredibly, incredibly tough league? I think to preface this transfer, it's it's important to understand a little bit about Jordan Morris's career. So he chose to stay and play NCAA soccer when he was a teenager. Um, instead of going to Germany, he had multiple contract offers there. He's gone on to be, you know, a defining moment, a defining member of a, of a championship team. Um, you know, the Seattle Sanders, they won two MLS championships in the last four or five years, and he scored almost 50 goals for them. So he's clearly someone who's really talented. And the difference between him and most of the other transfers that we talk about is that he's already 26 years old. But Nick, as you said, the championship is an incredibly physical and incredibly difficult and competitive league. I'm curious to see how it goes because it seems like it's a low risk kind of move for him because, you know, he can always go back to Seattle when his loan is up, but definitely it's an opportunity for him to carve out an impact on the biggest stage on a bigger stage rather. Oh yeah. This move is great. Honestly, I think this type of transfer has the potential to be so much better for the U S national team in the short to medium term, because you have a player like Morris that recognizes that he needs a loan where he can succeed 
And because he's already 26, you know, it's not like he's going to get the benefit of the doubt that he's like a young player with room to grow. And so I think the championship is a great opportunity for him to steal himself in Europe. And if things go well, he can sort of complete a permanent move to Swansea, or he could try to join like a DeAndre Yedlin at like a Newcastle type club mid to lower table Premier League side. So I think it's a great kind of low risk move, as Nathan said, and it will make him much better for World Cup 2022 in a way that a lot of these players probably won't be ready to contribute that much until, you know, World Cup 2026, which is the big one because it will be in the United States. Right. I think what's good about this move is that he has a finite period of time to establish himself at Swansea. Like he knows that he has six months to make an impact for a club that are seeking promotion this season back to the Premier League. I think that has to motivate him in order to play well in the championship. I think it's really, really tough to get any momentum going as a historically as a January as a January signing in this league. As Nathan said, it is incredibly physical. It is tiring. You're playing multiple games a week against a variety of teams that set up in a variety of different ways. I do think that he has the experience and the nous to succeed. And like Nathan mentioned, once you've won a championship, it doesn't matter where you are, like what country you're playing for or what country you're playing in when you've won that championship, you know what it takes to win. And Swansea have had a pretty good track record in terms of treating foreigners or foreign players well. And I have full faith in Swansea to, uh, to do good by Jordan Morris and by extension, Jordan Morris could succeed for Swansea and send them back up to the Premier League. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Swansea are only uh, seven points off of the lead right now for the championship. But anyways, we should wrap things up here. It's been a heck of a weekend and we'll certainly, uh, the drama is not going to slow down anytime soon. We've got more league games. We've got a midweek match day again in the Premier League. We are only a few weeks out from the Champions League and Europa League rounds of 16 and 32 respectively definitely expect more high quality analysis like you just got from us but i've been nathan strauss caleb Reds. frank i'm so sorry but you're a fraud i've been nick vinden god bless america we will see you all next time